Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. A few of you might have seen some signs on the way to church this morning. Now, if you were driving, my hope is that you probably followed them. Um, that Well, let's see. And, and there's a few, as you can see, there's a few scientists. So essentially, this was an excuse for me to look at funny signs on the internet this week. So I didn't put the funniest ones up, but we follow signs all the time. And here's the first slide. My favourite one in this corner, if, some, if one of you can find the town centre of, that, of those signs, then you're a better person than I would be. I mean, come on. Your guess is as good as mine. I think you'd be safer walking to find it than driving, let's put it that way. If we have the next one. Okay. Yeah. Sign not in use. I'm sure, pretty sure that doesn't need a sign to say that. But that's only my humble opinion. This other one, can anybody guess what that is? It does. It says multi-faith area, and apparently it's a new shelter that's up at Bristol Airport. So when you're waiting for your friends and family to collect them, you can have a little pray. And it's a very small... I know Debs' face is, is, is the one to watch. Next, it's the first thing you think of when you're waiting for a plane to land. Bottom one, this, I thought, was also a genius sign. I mean, it's not the place where you can throw people off a cliff. <laughs> I, think, I think it did say it was to say that it's a, no sli- it's a slippery surface. And I'm not convinced that that's what it says. And then the top one, because we're getting into Christmas, let me know what that one is. It's to watch out for dog sleds in Green- Greenland. Not Manchester. <laughs> not often seen in Manchester. Okay, so I think, given that, it's fair to say that there are plenty of signs around at the moment that it's Christmas. Now, when I was younger, the sign that Christmas was on its area was a big Argos catalogue arriving in the house, sitting with marker pens. And I'd like to say marker pens. Often it was three of us going bagsy that. And I still, to this day, don't understand how my parents would know what we'd bagsied. Anyway, we never really got anything that was on the list or... Me, I'm still waiting for my Mr. Frosty. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> As an adult, there's an increased amount of toy adverts that I spot when I'm watching television. My personal favourite is perfume adverts. Exactly. I, I've still yet to understand the link between the advert and selling a perfume. They just seem to get more ridiculous every year. So some of you may have guessed that we might be heading into a passage today where a sign is used by God to direct people to the first Christmas, the arrival of God incarnate in a vulnerable baby, showing up in a very broken world, his rescue plan being put into action. And we're going to look at the response that this provokes in the people around him. So we're going to delve into Matthew's gospel and his account of the birth of Jesus, which, unlike Luke's account, tells us nothing of the dramatic angelic announcement to Mary There's no census being taken, there's no crowded inns, there's no chorus of angels, and there's no shepherds. The main character of Matthew's focus, other than Jesus, is a little snippet we have in in chapter one, where he's got this dilemma of a pregnant virgin fiancé. To make things better, an angel arrives to him, just to let him know what's going on. And it's the fulfilment of prophecy, 
the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. I'm not sure if that calmed him down that much in the moment. Then we get to where we'll spend some time today. A bunch of wise men arriving in Jerusalem, appearing before a vicious leader, Herod, probably one of the most infamous characters in the Christmas story, but for understandable reasons, is often left out of the cosy nativity scenes we will see up and down the country at this time of year. And the subsequent visit of the wise men to Jesus. So let's head into Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So it feels like when we first read these verses, it's a little bit like walking into a room where there's a film already playing. And we need to take a moment just to catch up on what is going on. We've got a group of wise men from the east. They've rocked up in Jerusalem following a star. Hence my link to looking at stars that signs this week. Looking for a new king that had been born. An evil leader, not entirely thrilled by the possibility of a threat to his title. And then the religious leaders of the day, being pulled into this story by Herod, tasked with providing him with some more information about these unusual goings-on. Now, it would seem to me that one of the main protagonists here is Herod. I will look at the other characters, but given that we are not given the names of the wise men or the Jewish leaders, I think it's safe to assume that we are to take note of Herod's presence here in the passage. Although Herod had been installed by the Romans as king of the Jews, he, wasn't, he was himself not fully Jewish. He'd worked hard to gain credibility. He just happened to marry into one of the oldest Jewish families that had a lineage going back to the Jewish kings. During his rule, he had achieved great building projects, including rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. He was desperate to be adored by his people, but he couldn't be trusted, and he himself trusted no one. Herod was constantly on guard against threats to his rule, especially from his own family. He didn't think twice about having family members assassinated if he suspected them of disloyalty. When he first came to the throne, he'd arranged to have 300 court officers slaughtered. He'd murdered his favourite wife, her mother, his eldest son, and two other sons. In fact, it was recorded the Roman emperor, the big wigs back in Rome, had said it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. <clears throat> the last order he made before he died was to arrest thousands of people from across the country, impound them. On his death, they were all to be executed. He wanted to make sure that there was mourning happening across the land when he died because he knew nobody would mourn for him. I think this gives us the flavour of the character that we're dealing with this morning. And therefore, it's not a big jump for us to see and understand the possibility of a new king being born would be a massive threat to Herod, especially if it really was this promised king, the Messiah, king of the Jews, a title he'd literally had to kill for and he knew never really belonged to him. Now, he was a brutal character, but for all intents and purposes, he was a man of his time. The birth of Jesus is often remembered and retold in soft colours with a beautiful baby, a serene mother, and a generally courageous father. But this was the reality in which God was exposing himself to, in a complete act of vulnerability that is at the heart of God's rescue plan, God becoming man. A light is breaking through here, and at the beginning of the gospel, and at its conclusion, Matthew presents us with a picture of the depths of evil that Jesus has come to redeem. In verse 7, we see Herod starting to scheme and plot by pulling the wise men aside secretly trying to find out from them where the star they had been following had appeared. He sends them on their way to Bethlehem to search for this child. 
and says, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, given what we've just learned and what probably most of us know, he had absolutely no intention of worshipping Jesus. And later in this chapter, we see him make an order that all baby boys under the age of two are to be slaughtered, fully revealing his heart's intention towards this baby that had been born king. Jesus, the promised Messiah, born in Bethlehem, who was to be a source of joy to the nations, was a real threat to this pretend king of the Jews. Now, I think it would be really easy for us to think of Herod as someone quite far removed from us, to make him out to be some kind of pantomime villain. After all, as far as I know, I'm not an evil dictator. Although, technically, there is rumour that there is one in my family. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> Cuban as well. Um, but I think at the root of Herod's issue was a threat to his position. If this baby was really the Messiah, then he was no longer the big deal that he thought he was or that he had been trying to become. Ironically, although Herod had decided he was Jesus' enemy, it wasn't Herod that Jesus had come to conquer, rather the sin and evil that had a grip of his heart. Herod needed a saviour as much as the people he was suppressing and ruling. And I think there is a challenge for us in this, in recognising that Jesus is now the main thing, that he is to be the most important person in our lives, means that we are no longer in that position. And what does that look like for us? When we are making decisions about our families, our jobs, our finances, personal relationships, are we putting ourselves first or are we letting Jesus take precedence? When we are facing a crisis, in whatever form it comes, are we putting Jesus in all his kingship at the centre of our decision making? Or are we wrestling through it in our own strength, not turning to God that made himself so small and vulnerable in order to rescue us? And trust me, I am saying this to myself as well. I've said it before from the front of here and I probably will say it again because God continues to work on this area for me that often my first reaction to a problem is to dig down into myself, to try and deal with it on my own. Often coming to God when it's sorted or when I've tried every other method available to me and I'm still struggling. And there are marks of Herod's behaviour in that. There's marks of not putting Jesus at the centre. Alternatively, there could be areas in our own lives where we are content with building our own personal kingdoms. This could look like any number of things and the list could go on, but it could be our personal achievements, your children's achievements, the size of your house or the holidays that we take. And don't get me wrong, none of this is wrong in, the, in and of themselves. But if we really believe that Jesus is Lord, if he's the Messiah and the Saviour, then he should be at the centre of these things. And we should be following his call to seek his kingdom first. I think that we probably all have areas of our lives where we struggle to put Jesus at the centre. And if there is something that immediately comes to mind or that you can easily think of, then I would encourage you to get some prayer with someone before you leave today. Surrendering our control in these areas to Jesus can be really hard to do, but it is without fail the best thing we can do. To recognise our weakness and surrender it to a sovereign God who, as John puts it in his gospel, and I love that we sang that song this morning, we didn't know that, but he gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. And if you were here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, or someone that doesn't believe that this baby that we celebrate at this time of year 
has come to save you. I would suggest that you ponder on these verses from John. Chat them through with the person you came with or chat to one of us that you've seen around. Ask us what we believe this birth means for us and for you. Don't miss out on the opportunity to put Jesus at the centre of your life. So let's move on and see what's going on with the wise men. In verses 1 to 2 and then 9 to 13. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them and came until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, I know that the Christmas carol has us all singing that these were kings that were following a star, and it makes for a great strong song, but it's not necessarily true. The word that Matthew uses is magi, which can often refer to magicians, astrologers, experts in interpreting dreams, or other strange goings on. At their best, they were seen as full officers and priests in their home nations. At their worst, they dealt with sorcery and magic. But I think whatever they had been before, following the sign that God had sent them, the star, and searching for Jesus, earns them the title we tend to use for them today of wise men. What we do know about them for sure is that they were Gentiles. See, at the beginning of Jesus' life, we're given a blueprint to how this new kingdom that he's reigning will unfold. Although they themselves refer to him here as king of the Jews, it doesn't mean that his rule is going to be limited to Jewish people. At the heart of many of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah was that this rule, this new rule, would bring God's justice, his peace, to the whole of the world. God's salvation plan wasn't going to be limited to one group of people alone. His kingdom was then, and remains still today, a kingdom that every single person is invited into. Now these men would have studied the skies, searching for new world events unfolding. They saw the star that God had given them, and they set out on a journey, which I'm sure in parts would have been fairly treacherous, with no idea as to how long that journey would last. But such was their intentionality to find Jesus, that they were not distracted. They went to Jerusalem when the star disappeared, which made sense at the time. They learned more about what was taking place. And when they went on the way and the star was back, when it rested over the place where the child was, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, as a self-confessed word geek, I love this sentence so much because rejoice would have been sufficient. Any English teacher would say rejoice would be fine. Great joy would have been fine. But actually, no, Matthew tells us they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Talk about trying to emphasise a point. Their response to the birth of Jesus is appropriately off the charts. And one of the things that I love about God sending a star to these Gentiles, sky watchers to follow, is that he spoke to them in their own language. Just as he sends an angel out to shepherds on a hill, he uses prophecy with the Jewish scholars. 
He uses a language that is tailored to them, that they know so well. And I think it's a mark of the kindness of God that he did that then and that he does that now. And I think we can sometimes wrap ourselves up in knots wanting to know what it looks like for God to speak to us today. And I think more often than not, it will be in everyday occurrences. It will be in things that we are familiar with. He is not a God that is far removed from us. He's a God that knows us intimately well, and he knows how we need to hear from him. I think one of the other, if not the main significant response here in this passage with these Gentile wise men is that they came with their hearts ready to worship Jesus for who he was. They bowed down and worshipped him. They presented gifts to him. And it's such a beautiful act of adoration and surrender. The wise men sought out Jesus and worshipped him. They didn't worship Herod, we've got no mention of that, but they knew that this baby that was born was to be worshipped, even at a great cost. They were not satisfied with looking at the star and admiring it. They had to do something about it. They sought to worship the creator of the star, not the star itself. They were not discouraged by a vengeful king or doubtful religious leaders. They sensed the urgency to worship, not to wait until later. And they came offering gifts, not empty-handed adoration. The wise men sought Jesus out wholeheartedly. And that is a question I think we should regularly ask ourselves. Are we seeking Jesus with all our hearts, even the parts that we struggle to surrender to him? Now, we may not and probably not don't come with gold and frankincense or myrrh to offer up to Jesus in worship. But that doesn't mean that we come empty-handed to the crucified and risen Jesus in worship. We worship with the words of Paul in mind when he writes to the Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, what Jesus is asking for is us to bring our whole selves in fully to worship him. Now, at the start of Jesus' life here, we can already see two camps being formed. One full of praise and welcome, the other full of hatred and opposition. Herod and the wise men stand in strong contrast to each other. And it's a contrast, as we know, that deepens as the story of Jesus' life unfolds towards the cross. And finally, there's one more group of people here in the passage that I want to look at. The Jewish religious leaders. Verses 3 to 6. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem, Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is the first contact that the religious leaders of the day had with Jesus. Where it, and where it could be argued that Herod's reaction would to the birth was reasonable. Abhorrent, absolutely. But reasonable, yes, he was a threat to Herod. The wise men reacting in worship, also definitely reasonable. It's the call that we have on us today. But the reaction of these Jewish leaders, well, to me, they seem completely unreasonable. You see, the chief priests were called to steward the temple. They were to look out for the Messiah. It says in Malachi that they had to look out for suddenly 
come, where Jesus suddenly come into the temple. The scribes, well, they were the spiritual guides of Israel. Both sets of people were literally waiting for the Messiah, speaking about him in their messages, praying about him in their meetings, singing about him in their worship. They literally had one job. They were so aware of the prophecies of a promised Messiah that as soon as Herod approaches them, he wants to know what's going on. He tells them. They instantly quote from the Old Testament. They instantly quote from Malachi. They don't drop a beat. They told him the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. But no matter how much they praised God for his past work, no matter how much they studied his promises for the future, well, God being in their present didn't interest them. They were happy to watch the wise men, Gentiles no less, continue on the last leg of their journey from the east in search of the Messiah and not make just the six-mile journey out of Jerusalem to Bethlehem with them. Imagine waiting for something, studying it your whole life, and then having no reaction to it when it arrives. Now, because it's Christmas, I'm going to use that example. So let's say you've been looking forward to Christmas 2023 forever. This is the one. It's the big one. You were so excited that you were counting down the days, the years. And then lo and behold, the 1st of December arrives and you run to that advent calendar, open the door, get the chocolate down you, or whatever fancy advent calendars that you might have. It's a whole industry of itself now. <clears throat> but the countdown is on. It's within sight. It gets close enough to put your Christmas tree up, unless you go early in November. And I might judge you for that. I'll repent for it, but I will. <clears throat> then lo and behold, it's Christmas Eve. So close. You get your stockings out. As I was doing this, I was reminded of one year where I put a pair of tights out as a stocking to see if I could get two lots of stockings <laughs> and failed. But imagine then waking up on Christmas morning after all that excitement, all that chatter, and doing nothing about it. Like having no reaction, treating it like every other day that it's been before. It would seem a little bit odd to wait expectantly for something to arrive then ignore it, is exactly what the religious leaders are doing here. You see, for these Jewish leaders, God in the past was safe, like something that you go and see in a dusty museum. God in the future was exciting, but still safe. It wasn't a reality. It was a daydream that couldn't challenge them. But God turning up in the present, well, that changes everything. The coming of a Messiah, the King of Kings, demands nothing less than our full devotion. And as John said, if you were listening the other week, no preach is complete without a C.S. Lewis quote. So I've picked up the challenge. And he says that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance and is, if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. You see, ironically, King Herod grasped the scale of what was going on in Bethlehem. He may have underestimated his power and been threatened by it, but he understood something about it. But the Jewish leaders, well, they responded with indifference. They didn't want to be shaken out of their way of life. They spent all their time learning about God, teaching people about God, but completely overlooked and missed his promised arrival. Is it any wonder that Jesus had so much to say to challenge the Pharisees later on in his life? And as we read through the Gospels, you can track the indifference to Jesus, hardening to opposition, and then ending with their call for his death. Their knowledge of him was no substitute for knowing him or following him. If we look in Luke, 
So I've not got the verses, but we can see there's a little interaction where Jesus is presented to a man called Simeon in the temple, and, and he's described as being righteous, devout, and full of the Holy Spirit. He prays in the temple, and part of his prayer about Jesus is that will be a light who will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now we see this with the wise men. He continues, he goes on to tell the parents, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And can't we see here, these verses in Matthew, that even as a small child, hearts are being revealed by the presence of Jesus. The hatred in Herod, the indifference in the Jewish leaders, all coming out of the thoughts of their hearts. It appears that these religious leaders had no need to let him in. They had everything under control. They were self-sufficient. On the outside, it looked like they were looking for Jesus. They were getting ready for his arrival. But internally, their hearts were cold. They were learning about God. They were teaching other people about God. But they weren't actually getting to know him. They weren't pressing into him, allowing him, in, him into their hearts. And there are lessons for us here in this as well. Let's be a community of people that are honest and real with each other about where we are with our relationship with Jesus. A community that creates space not just to learn about Jesus, but that welcomes him in, that gets to know him better. It's okay for us to turn up at church and say that we're struggling. It's okay to turn up and say that things aren't right or that we're feeling a little bit off, that we're not sure where we're finding God at the moment in situations. Jesus wants our honesty. He doesn't want us to be cold-hearted. And we want to, our church to be a place where we can be honest with each other, that follows Jesus together. And I was just preparing this. I was thinking about the things that make us cold-hearted, and I think the things that came up were disappointment, waiting for God to show up. They can, if we're honest, cause our hearts to go cold. But here we're seeing that God breaks through in a massive way with the birth of Jesus, that light does come into these situations when we press into him. And there is a challenge here as well, particularly at this time of year. It's so easy to get caught up in what the world's view of Christmas is. And I know I can do it. I've already said this year, and I can be quoted, as saying that my favourite things about Christmas are food, Literally, I have said, every roast dinner from now on to Christmas is a dress rehearsal for the main event. And music, although not the cheesy kind, you will not find Wham! or Mariah Carey on any of my playlists. <coughs> but you can insert your own things into that sentence, what you look forward to most at Christmas. However, as we focus on the birth of Jesus, this baby born in Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy, hated by a ruling king, worshipped by wise men from the East, we should remember that the whole world has been spun on an axis at his birth. All of history and the future is changed by the birth of this Messiah. I think for some of us, it might be easy to say where we are or we aren't currently responding to Jesus in our hearts. Where we are struggling in situations to put Jesus in his rightful place as Lord and Messiah over those things. Where we don't want to let go of control or if we're being honest, where there are parts of our hearts that are cold and unresponsive to him. Or it may be that we are wholeheartedly seeking after Jesus. However, as I was preparing this, it struck me that as humans we can be a little bit complicated. 
And I think we're capable of holding all three of these positions at the same time or in a 24-hour period, wrestling with the desire to worship Jesus wholeheartedly, but really struggling with areas. My prayer for us as a church this Christmas is that we take a leaf out of the wise man's book and intentionally search our Saviour out to worship him fully. In particular, for those that are struggling with situations and circumstances, I'd really encourage you to hold on to these wonderful verses in Isaiah about the birth of Christ, about what Matthew is talking about. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And as the band come back up, and as we prepare to respond, I'd love for us to take time today, but also in the coming weeks, to dwell on Jesus, to dwell, to dwell on God, just to take time out before all the craziness begins, to give him space and permission to move in our hearts, to bring him into those situations that we are struggling with. Let's be people that respond to Jesus like the wise men. Let's be stargazers looking out for encounters with the King. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode. From our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk We look forward to connecting with you.